Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Christmas Eve, 1969. In Malibu, Equatorial Guinea, roughly 150 men were marched into the capital city's soccer stadium. The bloody, beaten, and shackled prisoners knew that the end was near. As they looked at each other, the men all realized that the crime they'd committed, the one that sent them on this gallows walk, was ludicrous. They all belonged to political parties that rallied against the president. For nearly a year, President Francisco Macias Nguema, the first leader of the new nation of Equatorial Guinea, had been rounding up political rivals and making them disappear. Tonight was no different. The men were lined up against a wall. Suddenly, a song began to blast through the stadium loudspeakers. The men recognized it as Mary Hopkins' Those Were the Days. Then... Soldiers appeared carrying machine guns, and all dressed as Santa Claus. Before the prisoners could process what was going on, they were cut down. 150 more political dissidents had met their end at the hands of Francisco Macias Nguema. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. In this season, we're looking at three African dictators who came to power in the post-colonial era. Today, we'll begin our look into Francisco Macias Nguema of Equatorial Guinea. From 1968 to 1979, Nguema sadistically ruled over the former Spanish colony, committing mass murder on an impulse. It's estimated that he was responsible for the deaths of 50,000 people, though some believe the true number is twice that. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar.
The middle of the 20th century was a chaotic time in Africa. As decolonization swept through the continent, the power vacuums gave way to dictators who were just as bad, if not worse, than their colonial predecessors. Ethnic cleansing, economic oppression, religious persecution. These men had no qualms with the rivers of blood that ran through their countries. The most famous of the group was the Butcher of Uganda, Idi Amin. Born and raised in a time of British colonialism, Amin seized the opportunity to grasp total power when the British left. Like all of these African dictators, the outcome was a country left in turmoil. Other familiar names include Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, Charles Taylor in Liberia, or Jean Kambanda in Rwanda. All of these men inspired terror and fear throughout Africa. But one name is rarely spoken, Francisco Macias Nguema. While Idi Amin was feeding the dead to crocodiles in Uganda, 1,500 miles to the east in Equatorial Guinea, Francisco Macias Nguema was quietly liquidating entire villages. Fueled by paranoia, tribal chauvinism, and possibly heavy drug use, Nguema turned Equatorial Guinea into a veritable killing ground. As the Swedish researcher Robert of Klinteberg said in 1978, Equatorial Guinea had become the concentration camp of Africa, a cottage industry Dachau. Just like the horrors that befell his country, Nguema himself is a man who seemingly appeared out of nowhere. His early life, before seizing power in 1968, is shrouded in mystery. But what we do know is that like Idi Amin, Nguema used the colonial system as a means to grasp his own power. But instead of British colonialists, in Nguema's case, it was the Spanish. Equatorial Guinea lies on the western coast of Africa, between Gabon and Cameroon. The country consists of roughly 10,000 square miles of mainland called Rio Muni, as well as a few islands, most notably Fernando Pu, known today as Bioko. But while Rio Muni comprises the bulk of the country, historically, it's actually Fernando Pu that's been the key point of interest. Initially colonized by the Portuguese in the late 1400s, Fernando Pu was considered a perfect spot to establish slave trading posts and sugarcane plantations. Unfortunately for the Portuguese, they would never find success. Poor weather and resistance from the indigenous tribes on the island made it impossible to establish any long-term colony. But the Spanish Empire decided to give colonizing the island a shot. In 1778, they acquired Fernando Pu, hoping to use it as a market for sending slaves to Cuba. But just like the Portuguese, they were met with disastrous results and more or less closed up shop. For roughly 100 years, Spanish Guinea was cast aside. That is, until the late 1890s. After losing possession of Cuba and the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, Spain turned to Spanish Guinea as the new place to boost their economic interests, especially after they realized Fernando Poo was rife with a highly sought-after crop, cocoa. 
As Spain's plantation owners flocked to Spanish Guinea to rejuvenate the stagnant colony, there was resistance from two of the leading indigenous groups, the Bubi and the Fang. The Bubi people were the main inhabitants of Fernando Po. Naturally, the Spanish forced them to work on these new cocoa plantations. Although they were technically not slaves, life for the Bubi was oppressive. They were basically indentured servants with few civil rights. In 1904, a policy called Patronato de Indígenas was established, which ostensibly made all indigenous people legal minors. The working conditions were another problem. Life for the workers on Fernando Poo was so bad that when the British discovered what was happening there, they put economic pressure on Spain to end some of its more brutal policies. But the more telling proof was that throughout the 1910s, many Bubby fled Fernando Poo altogether. That left the Spanish with a sudden lack of labor. They responded with two solutions. The first was to bring in Catholic missionaries to educate the Bubby and give them small parcels of land to work. This same tactic had been used to control indigenous people in South America. And as it did there, this move had a degree of success on Fernando Pu. Not only were the Bubby now rising as an elite ethnic group in the colony, but they soon became pro-Spanish. The second solution was to ship more indigenous people over from the mainland on Rio Muni. And no ethnic group was more resistant to this new policy than the Fang. For centuries, colonizers struggled to establish or explore Rio Muni, the 10,000 square miles that make up the bulk of Equatorial Guinea. One of the main reasons was resistance from the Fang, who accounted for approximately 80% of the mainland population. However, with the lack of manpower on Fernando Pu, the Spanish decided it was time to finally conquer the Fang. In the mid-1920s, the Spanish military was sent in to pacify the Fang. The war between them was short, but brutal. In the end, the Spanish won, and many Fang were shipped over to Fernando Pu and forced into labor. Despite the circumstances, the Fang refused to embrace anything Spanish. They even resented the Bubby for becoming pro-Spanish. Instead, the Fang became the most vocal anti-imperialist ethnic group in Spanish Guinea. Throughout the 1950s, the Fang started to organize guerrilla movements to fight against the Spanish. Although Spain was able to suppress many of these uprisings, the call for independence grew louder and louder with each passing year. One of the loudest voices was a Fang politician named Francisco Macias Nguema. The first 40 years of Nguema's life are shrouded in mystery. What we do know is that Nguema was born on January 1, 1924, near present-day Gabon. Both of his parents were members of the Fang tribe, and his father was allegedly a powerful witch doctor. Growing up, Nguema wasn't the most intelligent or pious of children. Despite Catholicism being pushed throughout the colony, Nguema seems to have taken no interest in religion, and even less interest in his studies. It wasn't so much that Nguema was uninterested in school. By all accounts, he just wasn't very smart. 
It took him four tries to pass the civil service exam, which he finally did when he was 26. Like Idi Amin, Francisco Macias Nguema broke ranks from his own people and viewed their oppressors as a means to an end. If working for the Spanish was what it took to get ahead, he saw no reason not to do it. Sometime in the mid-1950s, when he was around 30, Nguema got a job as an assistant in the forestry department. Essentially, his job was to act as an intermediary between the Spanish and the local Fang, often as an interpreter. At some point during this time, Nguema got his first taste of corruption. Realizing that many Fang peasants feared the Spanish, Nguema began extorting the locals. For a simple bribe, he would intervene on their behalf if someone was in trouble with colonial administrators. Of course, the Spanish were unaware of this. They saw Nguema as someone they could trust. For the next several years, Nguema ran this racket like a small-time gangster, profiting off the misfortunes of the poor and working class. And as he was making money, he was also receiving promotions from his Spanish bosses. As the 1960s began, Nguema received a promotion that put him directly in the crosshairs of revolution. The call for independence was growing louder, and Spain, like the rest of Europe, was loosening its grip over its African colonies. Little did Nguema realize that as he climbed the ladder within the administration, he would be thrust into the middle of decolonization and come out the other side as president of a new country. Coming up, Francisco Macias Nguema becomes Equatorial Guinea's only elected leader. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now back to the story. In 1959, as anti-colonial sentiment grew across Africa, Spain finally began to loosen its grip over Spanish Guinea. They started by abolishing the Patronato de Indígenas, the policy that made all indigenous people legal minors. Now, the indigenous adults were considered technically citizens of Spain. A year later, the colony held its first ever public elections. Native Spanish Guineans were elected to represent the colony for the first time ever in Spanish Parliament. 
Finally, in 1963, Spain approved the Basic Law, which granted some level of internal autonomy to the colony, now known as Equatorial Guinea, especially at the local level. Appointed to oversee the new government was Prime Minister Bonifacio Ondu Edu, a local politician. As these events unfolded, Francisco Macias Nguema was appointed mayor of Mongomo, a small town in Rio Muni. However, the appointment made him more than just a mayor. It also made him a member of Equatorial Guinea's new General Assembly. As the new semi-autonomous government began to find its footing, various political parties were formed. The majority of these parties were rather militant and demanded total separation from Spain instead of partial separation. The Fangs were the loudest group to demand independence. The Bubby, meanwhile, did want independence, but not with the Fang. They wanted Fernando Pu and Rio Muni to be two separate states so that they could continue their relationship with Spain on their own terms. During this transitional period, Francisco Macias Enguema appears to have mostly remained in the background. Unlike some previous dictators like Stalin or Kim Il-sung, Enguema wasn't a staunch freedom fighter. At the outset, he showed no real signs of revolutionary passion. Eventually, he formed a relationship with the Radical National Liberation Movement of Equatorial Guinea Party, or Monalihe for short. But for a mayor, Nguema was shockingly politically inactive. It's possible that he just didn't have the fighting spirit of the more militant freedom fighters. Or perhaps he was trying to keep his head down. It would make sense that Nguema showed continued loyalty to the Spanish, given that without them, he wouldn't be mayor of a small town. In fact, he wouldn't have been anything. But around 1967, as Equatorial Guinea inched closer to total independence, the 43-year-old Nguema suddenly became a staunch anti-imperialist. Not only that, he became one of the most vocal proponents for complete separation from Spain. In the span of a few short months, he gained a reputation for his fiery anti-imperialist speeches. So what changed? How and why did a nobody, this cog in the machine, suddenly change positions and become a revolutionary leader? Well, it appears Nguema was encouraged by a kindred spirit, Antonio Garcia Trevijano. Garcia Trevijano was a Spanish lawyer, political activist, and entrepreneur. As a staunch anti-Francoist, Garcia Trevijano hoped to free Equatorial Guinea of any and all influence from fascist Spain, including any post-colonial economic ties. In the ambitious Francisco Macias Nguema, he saw the ideal blunt instrument for his own ambitions. And in Garcia Trevijano, Nguema saw an opportunity to advance beyond being mayor of a small town in the middle of nowhere. How the two met is unclear, but we know that Garcia Trevijano wrote radical speeches for Nguema, most likely because Nguema, who was barely literate, wasn't capable of writing speeches himself. In a matter of months, with the help of Garcia Trevijano, Nguema's political star was on the rise. In October 1967, 
Spain finally called a constitutional convention for Equatorial Guinea. Over 40 delegates from Rio Muni and Fernando Pu were sent to Madrid to draft an official constitution for the new nation. 43-year-old Francisco Macias Enguema was one of those delegates. Like all constitutional conventions, the one held for the Republic of Equatorial Guinea was rife with contention. A major issue was that the bubby on Fernando Pu feared that the Fang would ultimately take control of the government. They wanted their own government, one that maintained good relations with Spain and with zero Fang involvement. In the end, no one could agree on anything. The convention adjourned with no constitution. The convention reconvened the next spring, in April 1968. This time, a constitution was written so hastily that it set the stage for the country to plummet into turmoil. Territorial lines were disproportionately drawn up so that not all the ethnic tribes were equally represented. The fear that the Fang would win control of the government seemed destined to come true. It didn't matter that the cocoa cultivated on Fernando Pu was the driving force behind Equatorial Guinea's economy. The bubby were outnumbered by the Fang on the mainland. In August of 1968, the Fang-approved constitution was ratified in a nationwide vote. All that was left was choosing the new president. The country's first presidential election came down to two men. The incumbent prime minister, Ondo Edu, or the burgeoning political star, Francisco Macias Nguema. By 1968, many people were fed up with Prime Minister Ondo Edu. Under his administration, corruption was the law of the land. Not only were many members of his cabinet totally incompetent, but they embezzled from the government's coffers. Thanks to bribery and kickbacks, they lived a flamboyant lifestyle that few of their constituents could afford they didn't even try to hide their crookedness. On the other end of the spectrum, no one really knew much about Francisco Macias Nguema at all. He was simply a small-town mayor and a firebrand for independence. What many people in Equatorial Guinea didn't realize was that forces in Spain were trying to sway the election in Nguema's favor. A group of Spanish financiers and politicians, led by Anguema's friend Antonio Garcia Trevejano, led an all-out campaign blitz against Edu and his corrupt administration. In Anguema, they saw a more likely ally. On Election Day, September 22, 1968, the people flocked to cast their ballots. Neither side held a majority, resulting in a runoff. But on the second ballot, one man emerged the victor. Francisco Macias Nguema. At 44 years old, he had become the first elected president of Equatorial Guinea. Although Nguema was now the president, his party, the Popular Idea of Equatorial Guinea, or IPGE for short, was actually in the minority within the National Assembly. In fact, the IPGE only held eight of the 35 seats. Nguema instantly knew that if he were to retain control, he would have to take drastic measures. But no one expected quite how far he would go. Within a few months of his election, 
Nguema ordered the arrests of members of rival political parties. Then, he had them summarily executed. After that, nearly 40 of his own security and bureaucratic officers were arrested and killed. Fearing for his life, former Prime Minister Edu fled to neighboring Gabon. Within months of his escape, though, Edu was captured and sent back to Equatorial Guinea, where he was brutally tortured, all on the orders of Nguema. In January 1969, Edu was executed. After taking out his political rivals, Nguema turned his attention to a group of people he had loathed his entire life, intellectuals. In his book, Psychoses of Power, Political scientist Samuel de Kahlo notes that Nguema had an inferiority complex with a particularly deep hatred for foreigners and intellectuals. Nguema hated knowing that some people were smarter than he would ever be. So, just as he did with members of his cabinet, he rounded up intellectuals and murdered them. As de Kahlo writes, Nguema was a marginal, malintegrated person who had managed to rise to the apex of power. So deep was his hatred for the educated that he even prohibited the use of the word intellectual in Equatorial Guinea and promptly fined his own minister of education when the latter used the term in his presence at a cabinet meeting. The brutality that Nguema demonstrated months into his reign was shocking and unexpected. He'd served as the mayor of Mongomo for years without incident. The lack of information about his early life makes it even harder to understand this brutal shift. How he was able to convince the police and military to go along with such heinous acts is unclear. Unlike Idi Amin, Nguema hadn't yet cultivated loyalty among the military. He'd sprung up basically out of nowhere in the course of a year. But somehow, these early purges went without so much as an objection. This was merely a preview of the horrible things to come. Nguema had gotten a taste of bloodshed, and it made him feel powerful. Next, he turned his attention toward the group of people who had helped put him in power, his Spanish benefactors. Coming up, Nguema purges the Spanish colonial holdovers as he consolidates his power. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Now, back to the story. In October 1968, 
44-year-old Francisco Macias Nguema became the first president of the new Republic of Equatorial Guinea. After branding himself as a staunch anti-imperialist, Nguema was elected to lead the young republic into the future. Less than three months into his reign, Nguema began to purge his political enemies, including the former prime minister, Ondo Edu. The sudden acts of violence were shocking and seemed to come out of nowhere. And yet, he was just getting started. Nguema's path to the presidency was paved mostly with Spanish coins. Antonio Garcia Trevijano, the Spanish lawyer, political activist, and businessman, not only wrote large portions of Nguema's fiery campaign speeches, but wrangled other Spanish businessmen to support Nguema financially. Their motives were obvious. They wanted someone in their back pocket once it was time to start capitalizing on the post-colonial economy, most likely in the cocoa, coffee, and timber sectors, the country's three chief resources. With a direct line to the president, there was unlimited potential for profit. But by the time Nguema was elected president, he wasn't just grandstanding. He had come to actually hate the Spanish. Garcia Trevijano may have intended for the fiery speeches to be geared towards Francoist Spaniards, but Nguema thought all Spaniards had to go. Nguema understood that Garcia Trevijano was manipulating him, trying to use him as a pawn. And when he thought back on it, he'd been a pawn his whole career, from colonial administrator assistant to mayor. The Spanish thought they could use him because he was indigenous, unknown, and not overly educated. In other words, he didn't pose any threat. He knew that's how they would always perceive him. He would never be seen as an equal. Nguema decided it was time to show them they were right. He was not an equal. He was their superior. Nguema was president. His power may have been handed to him by his Spanish friends, but it was his now, and he could wield it however he wanted. For the first months of Nguema's reign, the economy was still controlled by Spanish expatriates in the country. Colonial administrative buildings were still scattered throughout the region, running full steam. In Nguema's eyes, this meant that the Spanish expats were still trying to exert their control, not just over Equatorial Guinea, but over Nguema himself. It was time to send a message. On February 25, 1969, Nguema was touring through Rio Muni. When he got to the port town of Bata, he discovered that a Spanish military base was continuing to fly three Spanish flags, the symbol of Spanish sovereignty during the colonial period. Not only was the base still inexplicably being run by the Spanish, but they were flying the flags proudly in broad daylight. It was a total slap in the face to Nguema's power. Nguema demanded that the flags be taken down, but the Spanish consul general refused. So, in a series of vitriolic speeches, Nguema denounced the Spanish and aired his fury against the expatriates still living in the country. And yet, the Spanish still refused to comply. No matter how incendiary Nguema's rhetoric was, the consul did not lower the flags. The situation escalated absurdly fast. 
Within days, a paramilitary unit made up of unemployed Equatorial Guineans known as the Macias Youth stormed the city of Bata. The Macias Youth rampaged through the city looking for Spanish expatriates to assault. Soon the violence spread throughout the region. Nguema declared a state of emergency and demanded that the Spanish ambassador and all Spanish security personnel be expelled from the country. A mass exodus of roughly 7,000 Spaniards followed. In their eyes, it was only a matter of time before the executions began. Not everyone in Nguema's administration was happy with the inflammatory rhetoric. Chief among them were UN Ambassador Saturnino Ibango and Foreign Minister Atanasio Andan. On March 3, 1969, the two men returned from a visit to Spain appalled by the chaos in their country. Both men approached Nguema and pleaded with him to tone down the rhetoric and stop the violence, but Nguema refused. Realizing the danger of the president's actions, Andang and Ibango decided to take matters into their own hands. With support in Bata, the two men attempted to overthrow Nguema. The specifics of this coup are entirely lost to history. There is, however, widespread belief that Spain supported the coup. Regardless, the operation failed. Ibango and Andang were captured by Nguema's loyalists, possibly the Macias youth, and are thought to have been brutally executed in early March. With Ibango and Andang out of the way, Nguema decided that, in the wake of the attempted coup on March 5th, it was time to consolidate his power, particularly against the Bubi, who were still an adversary to the Fangs on the mainland. He ordered the arrests of roughly 200 people. According to De Kahlo, among those rounded up were the Bubi president of the National Assembly and the Bubi mayor of Malibu, then known as Santa Isabel. As De Kahlo writes, most of those arrested were never heard from again. Despite the earlier purges, historians generally consider March 5th as the start of Nguema's reign of terror, when he went from a new, inexperienced president to a full-on dictator. By the end of March, roughly 92% of the Spanish population had left Equatorial Guinea. Of the 7,000 who had been there before the purges began, only a few hundred were still willing to stay behind. Nguema had finally accomplished his goal of eradicating the Spanish. His next move was to shut the borders down. In particular, he banned any and all journalists from entering the country. Allegedly, Spain supported this. Their own dictator, Francisco Franco, had banned the media from even mentioning Equatorial Guinea. Next, Nguema created three new security forces, the JMM, Guardia Nacional, and Milicia, all reporting to him. He planted these guards in every government office. However, the most dangerous military group was still the Macias Youth. The Macias Youth essentially became Nguema's private army, answering only to him. Their main job was to target political enemies. If a member of the youth impressed his commanding officers, he was rewarded with a position in the government. And although these young fighters weren't paid, they made a good living extorting civilians. 
As a result of policies like this, Nguema's government became flush with sycophants and favorites. After the purges in March of 1969, government vacancies needed filling, and Nguema filled them almost entirely with family members or members of his Fang ethnic group. This meant a wave of Fang were now living and ruling on the island of Fernando Pu, setting the stage for a bitter war with the Bubi. Still, the biggest threat to the Bubi people was Nguema himself. For the next year or so, random acts of political violence were a common occurrence all over the country. This included the 1969 Christmas Eve massacre, where 150 men were killed inside the Malibu soccer stadium. But Nguema knew, like most dictators, that he needed to legitimize his power through something more than violence. He needed it to be set into law. The first step happened in 1970, when the 46-year-old despot abolished all political parties, including his own, IPGE. In their place, he established the United National Workers' Party, or PUNT, which he declared would be the only political party in the country. Nguema, of course, was the president of the Central Committee, the party's ruling body. Anyone who was caught engaging in rival political activity found themselves facing the Macias youth. Over the next few years, the dominoes quickly fell. On May 7, 1971, Nguema issued Decree 415, which repealed certain parts of the Constitution, specifically the legislative and judiciary branches, as well as the cabinet, were stripped of their powers. Instead, all direct powers of government and institutions went to the president. In October of that year, Nguema forced the National Assembly to pass Law 1, which, as the name suggests, is one of the very few laws they were allowed to pass. Law 1 legalized the death penalty for anyone who attempted to assassinate the president. And anyone complicit in the act faced 30 years imprisonment. But Nguema wasn't just satisfied with repealing parts of the 1968 Constitution or killing anyone who threatened his power. He wanted an entirely new Constitution that safeguarded all of his outrageous claims to power. The July 1973 Constitution was the manifestation of everything that Nguema had spent the previous four years working towards. He had written it into law that he was president for life, a title his party had proclaimed for him the year before. He had the power to do whatever he wanted, including dissolving the National Assembly and appointing and removing judges. At the end of July 1973, a vote was held and the new constitution was overwhelmingly ratified. According to the official election results, 99% voted in favor of passing it. It's no wonder why, in a nation where political dissidents are rounded up and killed at the local soccer stadium, all of this was merely a formality. The fact is, for four years, Nguema had already had absolute power. In less than a decade, Francisco Macias Nguema had gone from an absolute nobody in the forestry department to the tyrannical ruler of Equatorial Guinea. And yet, he still wasn't satisfied. 
For most of his reign so far, he'd put all his focus on suppressing political rivals, intellectuals, and Spanish expatriates. Now, as president for life, he decided it was time to turn his attention to the citizens as a whole. And not just the bubby, but the fang, too. With each passing year, Nguema's thirst for blood increased until members of his own family decided that enough was enough. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the brutal conditions under Francisco Macias Nguema's regime and how an unlikely person led the coup to bring him down. For more information, among the many resources used in our research, we found Samuel de Calo's Psychoses of Power and the Trial of Macias by Dr. Alejandro Artusio particularly helpful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>